Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And uh, today we will be uh, discussing uh, developing medical education programs internationally and in under-resourced uh, countries. And uh, today we have a, a very special guest who I have uh, worked with closely when I was training at uh, the American University of Beirut, Dr. Thirayi Araisi. Dr. Araisi currently is at Wild Cornell, Qatar, and she's actually a professor of clinical medicine and senior associate dean for medical education and continuing professional development in Qatar. Dr. Araisi was at the American University of Beirut Medical Center initially, where she was program director of internal medicine, and she was also head of the uh, rheumatology division over there. Uh, then she became assistant dean for graduate medical education at AUB and subsequently moved to uh, Qatar uh, about 12 years ago uh, as assistant dean for GME and then ascended uh, the ranks to her uh, position currently. And uh, we also have with us Dr. Mohammed Ali Jardali, uh, who has been with us on the podcast uh, previously, and he is a graduate of the Family Medicine Residency Program at the American University of Beirut Medical Center. I think he just graduated a month or a month and a half ago and uh, is currently uh, looking for jobs in uh, Lebanon. Uh, welcome to both of you, and it's very exciting to have you, Dr. Arefi, on the podcast and to see you. I haven't seen you for a long time. Khalil, what a pleasure to reconnect with you after so many years, and congratulations on this amazing podcast, which I've been following actually through social media. It's really very interesting, and I'm very happy to, you know, to be able to be part of it. Well, Dr. Jardali, uh, so nice to meet you. I've seen your graduation on social media. And uh, congratulations again. I hope you know you will be able to find a job very quickly. You know, I see that you have a very special, unique background and unique, you know, uh, specialties beside medicine. So, inshallah, I'm sure uh, that you will be able to find something that fits your needs. So, thank you all again. It's uh, it's really an honor to be invited. Yeah, and it's an honor for us to have you here. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to discuss first, I know you were in the U.S. initially, did your training, worked there for a while. Uh, and then what prompted you to, to initially move to Lebanon and subsequently get involved in medical education uh, over there? Well, yeah, I, I did spend, uh, I did do my residency and my fellowship uh, in the U.S. And it's, uh, you know, when I finished my, my fellowship uh, it was at a point where I had to make a decision of whether to stay, to stay in the US or to return uh, to Lebanon. I think for many of us who are now expats and who had trained in, uh, in the US, you know, Lebanon, returning to Lebanon and serving the country is, um, is always a dream, uh, I have uh, to say. And I, I was very fortunate, both for my husband and I, we were both very fortunate to be offered, actually, uh, both of us positions at AUB, which was for us a dream come true because, you know, AUB is uh, an alma mater that uh, for many of us who've trained there, it's uh, very close uh, to our hearts. We want to, you know, uh, pay back what AUB has given us. So it was a great opportunity uh, to return. And that, at that point, really, the decision was not... Uh, difficult at all. You know, do you stay in the U.S. or do you return and serve your home country at AUB? And, you know, it was very easy for us to make that decision for my husband and I and uh, return, uh, uh, you know, to AUB. Uh, so that really, that was that was the drive. It's that passion uh, to return. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, similar, to, similar to all of us, I think. Uh, and subsequently, how did you how did you get involved in medical education at at AUB? 
Yeah, that, that was very uh, un, an unexpected turn in my career. Uh, I was trained as a physician scientist at the NIH. My fellowship was really in clinical research. I was embedded, embedded uh, very deeply and heavily in clinical research in the US, specifically at the NIH. And my, in the back of my head, my dream was returning to AUB is to set up an infrastructure and for clinical research. So, but again, I was young and very idealistic at that, uh, at that point. But as soon as I returned to AUB, what struck me most was uh, seeing so many of the students and the residents wanting to leave uh, the country. You know, it was at a time when I was very passionate about returning, but yet when I hit, when I hit the ground, it was really appalling to me how many people still want to leave the country. The country was clearly in a different situation than it is right now. It was after, uh, it was after the 1990s. I returned in late 1997, early 1998. Things were getting better. The economy was starting to improve. So I was struck by, by that and uh, I started talking to the students, to the residents. And as you all know, you know, brain drain has so many causes uh, for it, uh, many of which clearly are not under our control as physicians or educators or even leaders in, in healthcare institutions or universities. But one of them struck me the most that many of the residents said, if we had a structured residency program that is similar to what's happening in the US, something where we feel we're all getting similar education, where something that might lead eventually to uh, being accredited or getting you know, certified by the American board, then that might help us stay. Because you know, the people also want to feel that they're getting that quality uh, education, that structure. And this was truly the beginning. I was a chief resident during my residency. And I had, you know, that was the beginning, uh, you know, those who've done uh, chief residency, it is usually the beginning of training in leadership. So I had some insight of what, uh, how do you structure a residency program, went to the chair of the department, who was extremely supportive, and he basically said, go for it. And this is how it started, basically. It started based on perceived needs of the community, of the residents and the students at AUB and in the Department of Medicine. And I think the project was very successful uh, because it met the needs. Yeah, that was one reason. But I think more importantly is because of the support that I have received from the chair, from the faculty, from the residents themselves. I mean, it was, we talk nowadays about co-production, you know, that idea didn't exist then, but truly it was a co-production of the whole community coming together and the chair changed and a new chair came in and he was equally supportive as well. And uh, so it's, it built a community that grew beyond the Department of Medicine into uh, the institution and you know i was asked then to move from the department to the leadership position at, at the faculty of medicine to help rebuild to help build the infrastructure for the institution for all of the residency program so it was an opportunity basically uh, you know people ask did you continue to do research yes i did continue to do research and i still continue to do research but clearly i became more of a clinician educator rather than a clinician clinician scientist and my career continued in that direction as a recent aubmc graduate i can attest that almost all programs now are acgmei accredited and uh, it's something that a lot of the residents are proud of at aub and you discussed how you did a fellowship at the nih and how you did the chief residency year 
And I wanted to ask you, what is the role of like the chief resident here in the medical education journey? Because there is no fellowship in medical education, right? So how do you see like the path into uh, medical education? No, there are fellowships in medical uh, education per se, but when I was, you're asking at UB, I guess there was no fellowship in medical education. Uh, uh, yeah, when I was there, there I believe there is now, and I, I can't talk to that, but I can tell you that the chief residency is actually one of the most, in, in my mind, it's a very important uh, stepping stone towards future leadership in medicine. So chief residents, you know, can be involved in medical education, but can be involved in, in many other things. They can be involved in quality, for example. They can be a chief residents for uh, outpatient. Uh, when I was at AUB, actually, uh, there was a chief residency before, but I strengthened, strengthened it significantly. And what happens in uh, chief residency is that the relationship becomes very interesting between the program director and the chief residents, because it also goes beyond what the chief resident does. It becomes also a mentorship relationship between the program director and the, uh, and the chief residents. And up to now, actually, I have a very close relationship with the chiefs, with, you know, with, we call them my chiefs who were, you know, when I was a program director. So I, I think it's a very important here. I, again, whoever agrees or decides to be, become a chief resident, I think they need to have the passion for work and they need to be, you know, willing, uh, you know, to become, if you wish, uh, future leaders. I think chief residency years would be also a little bit more helpful. It's much, if it's a little bit more organized, and focuses a little bit more in a formal way on the development of leadership skills in, in a more in a formal way of the chief residence, because this is how I see it. And if you see a lot of people who've had who've had future positions in medical education or otherwise, if you look back at their careers, you find many of them actually have been chief residents. So I hope I answered a little bit of what I'm looking for. You did. It's like a small, like... Uh chief residents who become like the future leaders, like you said, whether it be medical education or other lines of leadership, but it makes sense, definitely. And then I remember, I mean, I was, you, you were program director of internal medicine at AB when I was doing my medical school and then internship uh, there. I know how much the chief residents, I mean, a lot of them, I know you're still very much in contact with. Some of them are back in Lebanon. Some of them are all, all over the world now. And so what, what prompted you? I know like while Cornell was opening in Qatar, right? And then you moved there, I think at, when when it was uh, opening up, right? So how come you decide? How did you decide so to end up moving there? Well, I see myself as a builder, and it was a fantastic opportunity to be able to participate in building a, a new program in Qatar. And it was really the first medical school. So building a new program, building the first medical school, and also building something in the region. I'm very passionate about building the healthcare workforce in the region, trying to maintain the health, healthcare workforce in the region. So it was truly, I felt it was a wonderful opportunity and honor to be recruited to go to Wild Cornell uh, in Qatar in late 2008, early 2009. What advice do you have for international programs and what advice do you have maybe for under-resourced countries, given your experience? I think clearly one of the major decision that has to be made is whether there's a need and why are we, uh, and why are we building a medical education program? Because the worst thing that could happen is one would be investing in building a program 
and then the students or the residents who are graduating are not staying in the country, but they are leaving. And I'm not talking about the situation now in Lebanon. I'm talking in general, of course, because you're producing more physicians than what the country needs. So I think establishing a need uh, for the healthcare workforce is key. And the second piece is making, as, as one builds a medical education program, ensuring that that medical education program links to the needs also of the healthcare and the healthcare workforce. I think, you know, all of you, both of you are practicing physicians, and I'm sure you observe the same thing that I observe, which is we continue to see silos between undergraduate medical education, graduate medical education, and continuing professional development. I mean, in the ideal world, uh, if you're building something new, it would be very important from the get-go to be able to have a seamless, basically, transition, even intellectually, as you're building something between all of all of those three sections of in the continuing of the of the medical education. So just to you know to uh, you know directly answer your question, I think uh, identifying that there is need for uh, more uh, workforce and ensuring that the students you are graduating, whatever you are teaching them is actually aligned to the needs of the healthcare in the area, in the country, in the region that you are building a new program. And, and I think you've built a great program. I mean, slowly, I think it's been up and coming. And a lot of the medical students from uh, who are graduating from over there are actually ending up moving to the United States or other countries for uh, training in very good programs. And I guess also you were involved not only in, in Qatar, right? You were also involved in building or helping build medical education programs in other countries too. Well, I have worked uh, regionally with other countries uh, regionally in more as an in an advising capacity, basically. But definitely, I mean the again when there's an op opportunity, basically to share our experiences regionally, why not? Right? I mean it's it's uh, it's always a a plus. I mean, ultimately, you know, the world now is very open and very global, and you know what happens. This is how I look at the world. What happens in one part of the world affects the other. Look what's happening with the pandemic now. So if we can all participate and work together to improve the quality of medical education, ensure that we share resources, we share expertise, I think that's the way, in my mind, that, you know, we should be working together. And, and I think it's relatively easier when when there's a lot of resources in a country what do you think are the barriers to building good medical education programs in under resourced countries yeah of course resources are important i think the most important thing to be honest with you is vision vision doesn't need resources <laughs> so you know having the right uh, vision go basically what i'm going to say is going to sound very minimalistic and but really going to the basics is having the right vision having the right team basically to build realizing that you need a you need to build an infrastructure making sure that you recruit the uh, right faculty uh, that re you recruit the right students whatever is the need for for the country i think those are the basics and of course there is i'm not i'm not underestimating the need of the resources but the resources alone are not uh, sufficient actually to make a strong program. 
So just deciding to build a medical school because one wants, wants to build a medical school, I don't think that's enough, even if you have all of the money in the world. So and I think this is what's made the program here so successful. There is a, there's a very important vision actually beyond our success actually that has made us so successful and the outcome of our students be, as you said, uh, Khalil, uh, they're doing extremely well, you know, outside Qatar and inside Qatar. What you said really makes sense, especially about like the full picture of undergraduate medical education, graduate medical education and continuing medical education. We tend to think of them as fragmented sections when you're right, it is like a full continuum. So I really like what you said. And I wanted to ask you, uh, maybe we can transition a little bit to talk about like the role of new media and specifically digital education. Right now we're hosting a podcast. You're very active on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. So how do you see the role of new media and digital education maybe in democratizing uh, mm-hmm. medical education in general? I have to say I am a novice in social media. I, I keep trying to learn how to have a better voice on social media. So I'm getting better. I think it's a skill that uh, my generation doesn't come to us naturally. I learn a lot uh, from my younger colleagues and my students. I call this reverse mentoring. And I think it's really important in, you know, right now in this century at this time, actually to learn about the digital media from the younger uh, generation. But I'm getting there. So thank you for noticing that I am in social media. I'm work in progress when it comes to that. But uh, no, absolutely. I do follow, by the way, and I'm going to look back and tell you how how that could fit. I do follow uh, many of the uh, med met Twitter, I want to call them experts because I see myself as a novice, actually. Uh, For example, uh, uh, there's a physician in Boston. I'm not going to be saying, uh, you know, advertise for anyone, but I think he's awesome. And I, he writes about pathophysiology and I follow him on Twitter because uh, this is how I remind myself on regular basis about the pathophysiology of diseases that I don't even basically deal with anymore, but as still I'm an internist at heart. So that kind of helps me keep up and remind myself about the pathophysiology of, you know, hepatitis or gallbladder disease or interstitial pneumonitis or so uh, I also uh, listen to podcasts. There are several uh, podcasts, for example, that I listen to where they summarize articles from journals and I'm sure you're the same as many physicians. We really don't have the time to be able to read all of the journals to come our way. Uh, so I listen to them. So how does it link back to, you know, to answer your question? I think there are specific quality evidence-based uh, podcasts, uh, you know, uh, individuals who tweet that should be or could be highlighted uh, as, as resources for our students to go to as they are learning in a specific course or in a specific clerkship. Having said that, I don't think as a medical education community in general, we are ready, all of us are ready to take that step forward. I think many of us uh, in education, in medicine in general, we like tradition. And tradition is good. I'm not, believe me, I I love so many things about tradition of education. Yet, I think there's a lot of good things that are happening. I think the biggest challenge is how do you curate this material and hand it over to a student and to a resident so that they, you know that this material that's curated is of high quality versus, especially for a student, I worry more about the student than the residents versus them just going all over and not being able to decipher what is good and what is fake, 
basically. So I think it would be lovely. I mean, that's something that, you know, I've thought about this time, but at some point, but we've never had the opportunity to implement is having a structured way, you know how we review journals, having a structured way to review, you know, Twitter tweets or to review podcasts or, you know, to say those are peer reviewed, right? And in a very structured way, and then be able to curate them and have them all pulled together in a resource where then they could be a go-to place for our students and our residents. So yes, they're very important, but they have to be of high quality. And we as educators have to be comfortable pointing the students to them. I think that the American College of Physicians gives credits actually for a few podcasts. If you listen to them and sign in on the ACP website, they give you credits. So I think there is a move in the direction of uh, accrediting the high quality podcast that you're talking about. I definitely agree. But as someone who comes from an engineering background, I'm still surprised at how rigid the medical establishment is yes. sometimes and how it resists uh, change. Uh, it still surprises me. But uh, we are moving in that direction, definitely. I mean, I like the tension. I think the tension is important because uh, we take care of people, right? So that tension is having people who are resisting and having people who are early adopters. I think that tension really keeps us kind of in the middle, as long as we don't get stuck there and move forward. But I, I, I think there's also a value for that tension at the same time. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and I think, I mean, and you can see you can see how rigid they are because a lot of the societies in medicine, I think they've been very slow to adopt, let's say, Twitter or LinkedIn, and they have very few followers, but they are building it up over time. And one of the things that came up to me last time I was reading it is that papers that are published and posted on social media or reshared widely actually are cited much more frequently than papers that are not shared as much on social media. And, and just be, before we end, I think I was just, just going to take your advice or the advice that you have for, for medical colleges in under-resourced countries. I mean, I know it's hard and, and probably in Lebanon right now, that's what worries some of us too, is with the limitation of the resources in Lebanon, what would be your advice for the universities or colleges there to try to maintain the level of education that they have maintained over the past 20 or 30 years? I think try to maintain the infrastructure and try to maintain and support the faculty, basically. Uh, the faculty is the, uh, is the core, is the spirit of, you know, we are a university, university is made of faculty and students. So I think trying one's best to maintain the infrastructure and maintain the faculty are key, you know, especially in a place like, you know, home in, in Lebanon at this point to maintain uh, that, that quality. And one to be very deliberate about always thinking about uh, the quality. It can go to the wayside, but I think, you know, diverting in a, in a very deliberate manner, uh, some of the resources towards that, even in under-resourced, you know, there are always going to be decisions made of where do you divert the resources, but also ensuring that the mission of education does not slip because typically, you know, education is the weakest link. Uh, diverting, thinking about it, being deliberate about it, uh, keeping that infrastructure despite the challenges, I think, it, and, you know, taking care of the faculty, I think this, in my mind, those are very important as one transition from the crisis situation right now that's happening in Lebanon to, inshallah, a better, uh, a better place in, uh, you know, soon. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, inshallah, soon. so being deliberate, being aware, and 
not not losing sight of you know that that mission needs some funding for it. And I know that's not difficult. I, I know that's not easy. I'm sorry. I know that's very difficult. But yeah, currently I think in the situation it's it's a bit difficult. But hopefully uh, people will adjust to the crisis and and potentially try to come out of it. Uh, and people who go part. into education, I think they are passionate about it. They love, uh, they go for it for the mission. Uh, as you know, people in education, they're typically not after, you know, generating high income. Uh, so uh, realizing that, I think that's also important because you want to keep those people who will going to hold that mission and, you know, keep it floating until the situation um, improves. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you to both. Thanks to both of you for being on this uh, podcast. And I hope people uh, learned about developing medical education uh, programs in, in multiple different uh, countries with different uh, resources. Uh, so thanks to both of you for being on this uh, podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to see both of you and uh, chat with both of you on such a, an important topic. Uh, this was great. I learned so much and I really enjoyed your like systems thinking and uh, big picture. Uh, it, it was really good. Thank you.